So, this is the last of our study of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, the Gospel of Mark actually ends in kind of a strange, strange way. Um, it ends with the resurrection, but it ends um, with some verses that actually aren't in most of our ancient manuscripts. And so most scholars believe that that kind of ending was tacked on. But you know what's interesting is that it kind of shows the way the, the, the gospel and, and the resurrection just sort of left everybody kind of wondering what the heck just happened. Um, really is uh, fascinating to look at the accounts of the resurrection in the gospels like we're going to do tonight. Now, what's interesting is the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus in the gospels are actually not the earliest uh, accounts that we have of the resurrection. Do you know that? The letters of Paul precede any of our four gospels by about 25 years. So the earliest um, account of the resurrection of Jesus is actually in the letters of Paul, and there it's quite developed, quite a lot of reflection on what it means. But what's interesting in the gospel accounts is you don't see that reflection, even though they were written later. This momentous event is actually recorded the way it first hit everybody. It was like one of those things where when you tell this story, you tell this story the way it happened. It so emblazoned itself on people's minds that when they told the story, this is the story they told. I think it's pretty interesting. But, you know, I think it is a fair critique of a lot of Christians that we talk about the cross a lot and rarely talk about the resurrection. We talk about the cross a lot. But don't talk nearly as much as we should about the resurrection. Listen, the heart of Christianity is a bloody cross and an empty tomb. Without those two things, none of it really makes any sense. If you think about the cross without the resurrection, it's like listening to an incredible symphony. And you get to the very end to what they call, music theory people will know this, the penultimate chord. And then you just stop. And you're just hanging. Have you ever, you know, heard a piece of music and somebody stops before it resolves? So that you're just like, ah, oh, I got to sing that note. I got to, you know, I got to go up and like hit the piano and get that note to resolve. That's what it means to live in the already and the not yet. The, the beautiful symphony is, is sort of hanging. And, um, it's, we've got to get the resurrection. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons that I like talking about the importance of remembering Easter at Christmas. Now, I know some of y'all may be thinking, well, you know, it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and I'm sure there's debates. Libby could have done this for her question, actually. Is it okay? When is it okay to start listening to Christmas music? Uh, right? Because I'm sure we could have some lively debates about that. But I don't think anybody is thinking that at Christmas we should already be singing Easter anthems. And yet, I think it actually is really important that we remember Easter at Christmas. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, we live in a world that is so disconnected. And one of the great things about our culture is they just love to disconnect things that really need to go together. And Christmas and Easter have to go together. 
You don't ever want to think about Christmas just as a means to an end or just as an end in itself. As Paul tells the Galatians, at just the right time, Christ came, born of woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us, so that we might be sons of God. And ladies, that's not... um, demeaning to you, sons in that culture actually had rights and privileges that couldn't be taken away. That wasn't true of daughters. So when he uses that language, he's not being sexist. He's wanting to show how secure and solid our position is in Christ because of what he did. And the guys have to try to understand what it means to be the bride of Christ. So nobody gets to try to understand Christianity just through their gender, right? It's bigger than that. Um, Anyway, so we're going to talk about remembering Easter at Christmas. And I, I like to think of it this way. So we're going to have some Christmas gifts um, given out. And, you know, there's going to be some bizarre Christmas gifts. And unlike a lot of your Christmases, we're not necessarily going to be able to ask the giver of the gift what they were thinking. Um, you know, when you think about the ultimate Christmas gift and Jesus coming to this earth, um, we're not left wondering what that was about. I think about my grandma, Doris, who's went on to be with the Lord now, but she used to give the most bizarre Christmas gifts. Like literally sometimes, and she lived in Omaha and we lived in Baltimore growing up. So they'd always arrive by mail. There'd always be this box. You'd open it and there'd be presents. On Christmas Day, you'd open the presents. And sometimes you weren't sure if she mixed up the tags. Because <laughs> you're like, what is this? And is this actually for me? And if you didn't call her on the phone and then you didn't really want to have to ask her, you tried to like, you know, try to get some hints, you know, you got to ask the giver sometimes what the point of the gift is. There was one gift she gave us where she actually included a little note about what it was. She actually gave this to Wendy and I um, for our wedding and we opened it up and it was this wooden box and it had a lid. And when you open up the lid, it was all these recipes. But what made it really special was it was all of our family recipes that she had copied down by hand. And she put a note in that to explain, because I didn't know, you know, these are just recipes. No, these are actually special recipes. So when we think about the resurrection, it's important that we understand that it is the culmination of what Christmas is about. Christmas is not just by itself. And I hope you'll remember that as you go home and you celebrate. Remember Easter at Christmas. And what's the big deal about Easter? Well, it's about the resurrection. It's about the resurrection. Let me read from the end of the Gospel of Mark. We'll start chapter 16, verses 1, and we'll read through verse 9. Because like I said, the verses after that are not in most of our most ancient manuscripts. And they are a little bizarre. Um, they, They most definitely were tacked on sometime later. Um, and um, that's where the verse about snake handling comes from, you know. Um, it's in the, the spurious ending of the Gospel of Mark. All right, so chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So Jesus is dead at this point. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man 
sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. I love that. They were freaked out. Wouldn't you be? They were freaked out. They had never, uh, they'd never seen anything like this. Now, when we look at the resurrection, we, what we need to try to understand is, where does this come from? And, and what you find, as you look at all the kind of various ideas that were floating around in the first century, is that this idea of a bodily resurrection was a uniquely Jewish idea. The Greeks did not have any expectation or idea of a bodily resurrection. In fact, they would have been appalled at the idea that you would keep your body. They were looking forward to being set free from your body. The Jews are the ones who believed in a bodily resurrection, but they believed that it would happen for everybody all at once on the last day, on Judgment Day. So what you have with the resurrection of Jesus is you have these Jewish monotheistic men who all of a sudden have this view, which they're going around telling people about, that one of their friends, who they know was crucified, dead, and was buried, has now been bodily resurrected. It's within the Jewish framework, but it's such a radical departure from what the Jews expected. And the question is, how do you account for it? How do you account for it? The belief of the early church in the resurrection of Jesus is the link that ties in the hopes and expectations of the Jews, some of which we just read about in Isaiah 65, with the faith and preaching of the early church. Jesus does fulfill the hopes of the Jews, but in a completely unexpected way. There really is no other plausible way to explain the faith of the early church without Jesus's bodily resurrection. Not only that, but these Jews, the early church, changed the Sabbath day. You notice in the passage I read, it said it was on the first day of the week, but the Jews worshiped on Saturday, the seventh day. All of a sudden, Jewish people are saying that Jesus was bodily resurrected and they literally are changing the Sabbath. Do you remember earlier when we were studying Mark, how upset the Jewish leadership got when, when Jesus' disciples did stuff on the Sabbath that the Jews didn't think they were supposed to do? Like it, was not a, it was not a minor deal to change what day you worship on the Sabbath. I mean, it's in the Big Ten, right? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's one of the Ten Commandments. You don't just go messing with that. But they did, because something even bigger than the Big Ten happened. And they were driven 
to a position that they had not foreseen, right? The disciples of Jesus were not expecting a bodily resurrection. You see this actually at the very end of Luke's gospel. There are these two disciples who are on the road to a place called Emmaus. This is after Jesus' death. They don't know about the resurrection. They're really depressed, really discouraged. Jesus actually shows up, but they don't recognize him. And he asks them, you know, what's going on? (laughs) And they're like, are you kidding? Like, you don't know what happened? We thought that Jesus was the Messiah, but he's been put to death. And all of our hopes are dashed. And then what it says is that Jesus began with Moses and the prophets to show them in their scripture how everything was pointing to him and what he would accomplish. And that's exactly what happened to the early church. They had to go back to the Bible, the Old Testament, and read it again and be like, oh, whoa, we didn't see this. But now it's the thing that makes sense of everything. It really did happen, you know. It really did. I don't know, you know, what kind of ideas you have about the reliability of the scriptures or the gospel accounts. I just want you to consider this. The accounts in the Gospels were written down while the eyewitnesses were still alive. I know for the last hundred years, there's been a school of Bible scholarship that has said where there were these ideas and these sayings that were floating around, and after about a hundred years, somebody kind of put them together. Maybe you've heard about Q, even though no one's ever found Q. That's been a theory that's been advanced for the past hundred years. It's, it's probably not well-founded. Richard Bauckham, one of the great New Testament scholars of our day, has written a magisterial book called the Eye, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, showing that what you have in the Gospels do not have the marks of literary borrowing, but they show the marks of what you would expect if people were telling this story in their community over and over and over again. And the eyewitnesses that the gospel writers were able to personally interview, they named their eyewitnesses, because that's what you did in the first century. And actually, Bauckham has reconstructed which people John was able to talk to, Mark was able to talk to, Luke and Matthew. And it fits what we know from the early church about which people were in which area. It's remarkable. I want you to understand, these, as Peter says in his letter, they did not follow cleverly invented myths, but they were eyewitnesses. And Peter says, we actually beheld him. We saw him. And they saw him resurrected. As I said, and the letters of Paul are even earlier. Within 20 or 30 years of this event, we have written records of what happened in Paul's letters, all right? And you know what else is really interesting? Is when you look at the gospel accounts in the four gospels, I I was telling you how the closer you get to the cross, you have more and more quotes from the Old Testament, right? Like the, the frequency of that phrase, this was done so that the scripture might be fulfilled, it gets more and more the closer you get to the cross, okay? 
But when you get to the resurrection, there are no Old Testament quotes. Isn't that interesting? The quotes disappear. (laughs) And again, what's interesting is, even though the gospel accounts were written 30 years or so after the resurrection, they tell the story the way it first hit them. And I think that's really helpful. So what, what happened? What do we learn from the account? Well, all four Gospels agree that it was a bodily resurrection. I already talked about that. And yet, there are all these mysteries. You know, Jesus is not just a resuscitated corpse. He's really alive, full of life, power. He still has scars, and yet at times people don't recognize him. How do you explain that? See, here's what what I'm trying to get at is, if you were trying to make these stories up, you wouldn't leave it full of all of these weird things that don't seem to fit together. You would have smoothed that out. But when it comes to the resurrection accounts, all of the details, even though at times they don't seem to make sense together, they're just left in there. Which is actually, I think, a good encouragement that you're dealing with the story the way it happened. He's obviously, he's not a ghost. He eats and he drinks. He can be touched. He says, put your hand in my side, my wounds. And yet, sometimes he appears in the middle of a locked room. And, and he just shows up. And people, that's just what happened. You know, it's like the disciples are saying to us, this is just what happened. We can't explain it, but we feel like we just need to tell you what happened. In uh, John chapter 21, the disciples, they know it's him and they want to question him. They actually use a rare Greek word, Luke does, or John does, uh, which means to scrutinize. In other words, they recognize it's Jesus, but his appearance raises questions, and yet they're too afraid to ask him. It says, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, but they're like, but yet something's really different now, right? So that's what's going on. It really did happen. It really was a bodily resurrection. It was unexpected, and it turned upside down, like I said, the crushing disappointment that all of his followers had felt after his execution. What does the resurrection mean for us, though? So what? So what, right? Well, there's a couple, a couple things I think we, we need to consider. The first is, I just want to mention this little thing. In Mark's gospel, you remember Mark's gospel is the one that is the account, Peter's account, that he gave to Mark, who was his protege. It's the account where Jesus tells Peter, you're going to betray me. Peter says, no. Peter wanted to make sure this stuff got into the gospel, right? So this is the gospel that includes the point about not only him denying Jesus before the, the cock crows twice, but it also includes the detail that's in none of the other Gospels that Jesus looked Peter in the eye and Peter went away deeply sorrowful. And so do you understand the significance when, when the angel says, go tell the disciples and make sure you tell Peter? because he's really discouraged. Go tell Peter. I love that the angel 
takes great care to tell the one who feels the worst and the most discouraged. Isn't that just like our God? You know, when you might feel like, like you're a number, you're sitting in the back of the room, God doesn't notice you. No, God notices. And he says, tell Peter. Make sure Peter knows. Make sure you know. Make sure you know. This really happened. He really isn't here. He really is alive. Well, what does it, what does it mean? It, the first thing is it, it proves Jesus was who he said he was. The Messiah and the Son of God. Now, the Son of God is actually a really important title to understand. The inescapable fact of the resurrection caused the Jewish followers of Jesus to go back to the scriptures and rethink their expectations for the Messiah and his kingdom. They expected a Messiah who would kick Roman butt and set Israel free. We just read about Jerusalem and God's hope that he had promised for Jerusalem. And the Jews felt like when Jesus, when the Messiah, they didn't know it would be Jesus, when the Messiah comes, he will bring that glorious future for Jerusalem that they were singing about and hoping and praying for. And yet, that isn't actually what happened. And Jesus is the one who actually begins to teach them what the scriptures were really predicting. And what it did is it drew forth from these early Christians this breathtaking belief, is the way N.T. Wright says it, that Jesus was the actual Son of God, the unique Son of God. That meant that he wasn't simply Israel's Messiah, this is N.T. Wright, though that remained foundational to their understanding, it was that he was the reality to which Caesar and all the other tyrants were mere parodies. It meant that he was the personal embodiment and revelation of the one true God. It meant that Jesus wasn't just connected to God, he was God. And that's a pretty breathtaking, as N.T. Wright says, exactly, breathtaking affirmation by Jewish people who all their life recited the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one God. It was foundational to what it meant to be Jewish. And now they're like, yeah, we got to expand our understanding of what that's about. That wasn't a little thing. You have to be able to account for that. So the resurrection is the reason that they were driven to that. And it proves Jesus was who he said it was. It also proves that he did what he said he would do. When Jesus said, it is finished, it was finished. Jesus did everything that was required for God to embrace you fully in his love. Uh, that's why we sing that, that hymn. I love that hymn. Let us love and sing and wonder. Because really, when you think about what the cross and the resurrection are about, the only proper response is singing, loving, and wondering. Because there's a part of it you're like, I don't really understand this. Like, what, were his atoms like recessive? Like, I don't understand the physics of what happened. No, I don't either. Nobody did. But we know it was a real 
physical body, resurrected body. And we know that when he got up out of the grave, it proved that there was no longer any need for him to still be suffering for your sin. The resurrection is like an exclamation point, if you will, on Jesus' promise that I will do everything required for you to be beautiful in God's sight. And when he gets up out of the grave, it shows that there is no more need for punishment for your sin. Mm. We are people of the resurrection. I love the way Charles Spurgeon, quoting an old hymn, but, but I like the way he put it. He said, upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. The resurrection also, though, shows that God is committed to physical reality and to making it whole. See, Jesus died to do more than just bring forgiveness He came to usher in the kingdom. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over the powers and the principalities. This is Colossians 2, verse 13. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. In Hebrews chapter 2, it said that he put death to death. And so that by his death, Hebrews says, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So Jesus died, not just so you could be forgiven, he died to put death to death. He died to strip the powers and the principalities of all of their authority and power. The resurrection shows that God's plan is so much bigger than a little personal me and and Jesus salvation story. It's about a kingdom, revolution. He came to bring reconciliation of all things to God, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, to call us into the future that is coming and has been secured and to commission us to be the church, a colony of the coming kingdom, demonstrating to the watching world that there is another way to live. When the issue of what you are to God is settled by what Jesus did, it changes everything. And I commend that little little booklet I've been giving out lately on the freedom of self-forgetfulness that Tim Keller wrote. It's about this basic idea that C.S. Lewis said one time, that... The gospel, the the, the love of God, the gospel is not to make you think less of yourselves. It's to make you think of yourself less. If what Jesus did is really what he did, what the Bible says he did, you don't need to worry all the time about what God thinks about you. That's settled. That's freedom. That's freedom. Right? If Christ died for death to begin working backwards... I love that, that line. From, I think that's a token line, isn't it? That he, he died so that death can now begin working backwards. If that's what he really died for, the healing not just of your soul, but of the physical world, well, then that means that we should care about more than just people's souls too. The resurrection shows us that God's commitment is to the world he made, and he calls his people to the same agenda. And that brings us to the last implication of the resurrection. The resurrection puts us on a collision course 
with the world. It's the resurrected Jesus who's finally able to draw forth from one of his disciples, doubting Thomas, this confession, my Lord and my God. He's not really sure. He puts his hand in Jesus' side, and then he confesses, my Lord and my God. But you know, in the first century, those are really power-packed words. Those are the words that Caesar used to describe himself. And so when the Christians begin to understand that Jesus, the resurrected one, is the Lord, my Lord and my God, the persecution of Christians was inevitable. It was inevitable. And that's what the book of Acts shows us. The resurrection declared that Jesus is Lord of the world. And he calls his followers to declare that truth no matter what. Listen, there's a lot of ideas, particularly these kind of Gnostic ideas, that all that really happened is that Jesus kind of came alive in the disciples' hearts. But you can't believe in the silly resurrection. Nobody, no modern person could believe in that. Jesus just was kind of raised in people's hearts. Listen, the Romans were never threatened by disciples who thought that Jesus was just raised in their hearts. They were threatened by disciples who said Jesus is the Lord and God of the world because he was bodily resurrected and your crucifixion couldn't keep him down. That gave them reason to shake in their boots. And you can't understand Acts, you can't understand the persecution of the church unless you understood that the resurrection actually happened. That there is a hope that Christians have that calls them to stand up and tell the rulers of this world, whether they be political rulers or cultural influencers, you're wrong. That's what I love about that verse. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy's store. When through grace our trust in Christ is, justice smiles and ask no more. Do you know what that, that is about? Let me explain that verse to you, because it's power-packed. It means that J Jesus secured the smile of God for you. That what God thinks about you, if you're a Christian, is not based on his mood of the moment. It, it's not just based on, well, I hope he woke up in a good mood today. You know, It's not based on whether you had a good day or not. Whether you read the Bible or whether you prayed or whether you didn't, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change one bit what God thinks about you. What God thinks about you has been secured by Jesus living and dying in your place. He took the punishment you deserved and he gives you his perfect robes of righteousness. So when Jesus, when God looks at you, he sees Jesus, the beautiful one. And he sees you that way. Do you know what that means? That means that we can go out into the world and say to the world, I don't believe your lies anymore. I don't believe that I have to measure up to some arbitrary standards of beauty or value, that I have to be measured by what bottom line I can produce to this corporation or what kind of grades I get or how many friends I have. I don't have to believe those lies anymore because the Lord and God of the world is ravished with me loves me deeply. It really is a big deal, right? So final point, 
Why does the resurrection matter to you? Because without it, the story is incomplete. I think there are so many of us, we say we believe in the resurrection, we maybe confess it with the Apostles' Creed in church sometimes, but our lives might suggest otherwise. Let me just raise three questions for you to reflect on. Do we look like those who believe that Jesus finished the work of redemption? Or do we look like those scurrying around, making sure we can get enough brownie points with God to get into heaven one day? When people are around us, do they taste us as people who understand that our relationship with God has been settled and we can rest in that? Or do they see us as as people who are just so anxious and worried about what God thinks about us. Just to say, do we believe in the resurrection? Second question, do we look like those who believe God is committed to this physical world? Or do we look like those who are just biding our time in this evil world until we finally get to live a blissful, disembodied eternity in a cloud somewhere? The resurrection is not a tacked-on work after the real work of the cross. The resurrection shows what God was all about. And our hope is not to be raptured out of here into some disembodied existence on a cloud somewhere. Our hope is in the new heavens and the new earth that come down and the redemption and renewal of all things. So we might as well start working to that end now. It's what God cares about. The things that God cares about should be the things his people cared about. Third, do we look like those who really believe and have been commissioned to declare that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings to which every knee will bow one day? Or do we look like those content to carve out a little place in this world where we can, safe, where we can be safe from unbelievers and all of their evil influence? And I'm afraid the church looks like that too much of the time. But the resurrection changes everything. And it's true. It really happened. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you didn't just die, but that you were raised from the dead. And that that power that raised you from the dead, Paul tells us, is at work in us. Oh, help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.